of Worship, your source for commentary and discussion on worship, theology, and culture. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. Welcome to the Act of Worship podcast. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones, and I am continuing this lengthy series called The Psalm Project, going through all of the psalms where I am setting them to music, and the bonus is you get my commentary. In other words, you get to hear me blabber and blabber about theological ideas in the book of Psalms. So hopefully it helps you, otherwise you you could use this as something to go to sleep to. But here we are in Psalm 69. Um, I'll go ahead and tell you, Psalm 69 and Psalm 70, um, I set as sung refrains. Now, Psalm 70 is a short psalm. Um, But I will read that psalm, even though I set it as a refrain with spoken text. Psalm 69, however, I will not read the entire psalm here for you. You will hear it read in the recording. So uh, Psalm 69, I said it as I did, similar to many of the other psalms I have done as uh, sung refrains. There is a theological idea or maybe a verse from the book, uh, from from the chapter. In this case, it is Psalm uh, 6930 that I used as the refrain. And then the text, the rest of the psalm is read. So before we get into that, let's take a look at uh, some of the uh, outstanding ideas and verses in Psalm 69. Um, It is quite a well-known psalm, uh, partially because of its application to the New Testament, to the anguish of Jesus, his suffering on the cross. Uh, Jesus is often referred to as the man of sorrows. Um... It's also well-known because of its application to Jesus as God's righteous servant and how he sought the Father's will during his earthly ministry. Uh, The title is To the Choir Master According to Lilies. It is a psalm of David. According to Lilies was probably the musical setting that was utilized in the worship of Israel when this psalm was employed. So let's get into it and uh, look at some of the outstanding things in this psalm. It begins with a plea for help. David himself saying, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. And so David here pictures his distress as one that is slowly drowning or sinking in a body of water. Uh, We have seen before in the book of Psalms that raging waters are... Uh, are you that 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 illustration is used quite often in the book of Psalms and usually symbolizes some sort of chaos, either chaos in Israel or chaos uh, for the individual. And so that is the idea here. In verse two, he continues with that and he says, I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. This is poetic language, and it can be be, be compared uh, to the chaos of the water that I've just spoken of. And 
it can be compared in some ways in in a situation in which a person is suspected of a, of a crime uh, during this culture and in, in ancient biblical culture. They might have been cast into a river, sometimes even with a stone tied around them so that they sunk to the bottom. And so this is a very graphic and vivid illustration, but David here is relating this, uh, relating the figurative language to something that would have happened during that time. Somebody's convicted of a crime. Um, They certainly could have been sentenced to death. It's kind of interesting to me when you think of uh, the things that people died for in biblical times. And Jesus, even when he was on the cross, um, do you remember who was beside him? Thieves. <laughs> and they were sentenced to death. Now, in in Western culture, we would not sentence someone to death for the crime of theft. <laughs> but that is often what happened during these times. And... And so in the same way, David is saying he is sinking helplessly. And so the river would be expected to overwhelm and carry away this person. And so David here is crying out to release him from this torment. Then in verse 5, he says, Oh God, you know my folly or my sin. You know the wrongs I have done and they are not hidden from you, and although David is innocent of the charges alluded to him, which in the previous verse, in verse four, um, he says, "Many are those who hate me without cause. What I did not steal, must I now restore?" So, in other words, I didn't do anything. Um, so, although he's innocent of those charges, he doesn't claim to be without sin because he's not, and he knows that. Verse six. He says, let not those who seek you, or, or let not those who hope in you, be put to shame through me. He's concerned not for himself, but for others in Israel who might be injured in the same way through his sins. And so the possibility that his sins would affect others is enhanced by his power and his prominence, his prominence in the society. You've often heard the bigger they are, the harder they fall. That is something I heard playing football when I was growing up. You know, you'd see a big guy and you're scared to hit him. And they would say, well, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. In the same way, those who are in power have some sort of high position. When they fall, the fall is great. And we've often seen that, whether it's in the political realm or even in uh, ecclesiastical realm. In, in large churches, we hear of ministers who maybe had some sort of falling out and some sort of great sin that they committed. And um, it has a drastic impact because of their position. Verse 9. For zeal for your house has consumed me. This verse is applied to Jesus as he cleared the temple of the money chargers in John 2.17. And through doing good... That attracted the hatred of the wicked. You remember how many people hated Jesus and they despised him because of what he was doing, even though what he was doing was good. Can you imagine that? You do something good and people hate you for it, yet that's human nature. That's what happens. And so the enmity directed toward God might cause suffering for those who are like God, who are godly. Romans 15.3 
says this, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. When you're associated with Christ, when you are connected to him and people know it, you will face persecution. And certainly we have the privilege here in the Western society in the United States, or at least right now, where we are not persecuted physically, you know, that we are um, in a good situation. I'm not saying that that day won't come, or perhaps there could be some sort of real and drastic persecution against Christians in the United States. But even in the United States, Christians should, if they are connected to Christ, uh, face some sort of persecution, whether it is people lying about them or people making fun of them, whatever the case may be, there should be some sort of persecution. And if you're not facing persecution, you might want to question what's going on with your faith. Verse 11, when I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. So David here explains that when he performs this religious act, sort of like fasting, this you see this often in the Old Testament, sackcloth. That is a type of act that would symbolize some sort of despair. So when he does this, he has to bear the brunt of ridicule from rich and poor people alike. And he goes on in verse 12, I am the talk of those who sit in the gate. And the drunkards make songs about me. In other words, people are making fun of him. Even David faced that. Verse 15, we see this familiar phrase or familiar word that we've seen often in the book of Psalms. He says, let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. We have discussed this idea of the pit. Proverbs 1.12 says, like Sheol, let us swallow them alive. And so this idea of the pit, this is the realm of death. And it's depicted here in this verse in Proverbs as ready to swallow its victims. And elsewhere, this term denotes a realm where corruption is father and the worm is mother. For example, Job 17, 13, 14. It's a, it's a domain with gates in Isaiah 38.10. It's a land of no return in Job 7.9. It's a place of silence in Psalm 94.17. It's a place of darkness in Psalm 143.3. And it's a place of for, forgetfulness in Psalm 88.11. And so this idea of the pit or shield, this is the same place. Now there are those that would suggest, well, this is figurative. And because of that... There is no such literal place as hell. I strongly disagree. Jesus himself speaks of such a physical reality of hell more times than he talks about heaven in the Gospels. Uh, Far more. He speaks of hell far more than he does um, heaven. And I firmly believe there is a place of eternal torment for those who don't receive Christ. And that is why the Gospel is so crucial and vital and urgent for people to hear and receive. But here, David is talking about, he is using it as figure, using a literal place. When you think of the word Gehenna, a place outside the city where they would burn their trash and, you know, a place that no one really wanted to go. 
um, David is taking a very real place and using it in a figurative manner here in verse 15 when he's talking about the pit. Let the deep swallow, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. In other words, I'm in despair, and it's as if I am in this pit in Sheol. Verse 21, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. This idea of sour wine, that's very familiar because that's what was given to Jesus on the cross. And we see that act on the cross and think, oh, that's such a uh, gracious act. Somebody had pity on Jesus, and yet, no, <laughs> this was part of the mockery. They didn't give him water, they gave him a sponge with sour wine to drink. And so the, the bitterness here is proverbial. When the psalmist suffers such maltreatment, he responds with a curse. And he does that in verses 22 through 29. Now, I will read these verses. Let me read these for you. So he says they gave him poison and they gave him sour wine. And then he begins in verse 22. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents for they persecute him whom you have struck down and they recount the pain of those who you have, have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. So he responds with this curse. And so this metaphor actually became a reality when Jesus Christ was offered the vinegar or the sour wine at his crucifixion in John 19, 29. But Jesus responded with compassion for those who tormented him. That is the godly response. You want to know how to respond to someone who mistreats you? Look at what Christ did. As difficult as it may be, we are called to literally turn the other cheek, as Jesus speaks of. Verse 25, May there can't be a desolation. The psalmist here, David, asks for the death of, of the wicked in verse 28. Peter actually cites this verse in connection with the death of Judas Iscariot and the void that he left among the disciples in Acts 1.20. Verse 26. They persecute him whom you have struck down. So the enemy here furthers the pain of the afflicted. If God chastises someone, which does happen, this is no excuse for others to increase their pain. How often do we as Christians shoot our own wounded? And, and usually it's someone, in a, as I mentioned earlier, in a very high place, uh, very high position, a place of authority. Maybe they have a great fall, commit a great sin. And yet people are so quick, almost like they get pleasure out of it. They're so quick to make that person's pain worse. Surely they are receiving their um, their punishment or their um, their consequence in what they're doing, but often Christians don't help because we make it worse. Verse thirty: 
I will praise the name of God with a song. So the, there's a transition here. He goes from this curse, and then he goes to verse 29. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. And then in verse 30, he says, I will praise the name of God with a song. There's a transition from pain and the call for judgment to resolute praise. And it's a very abrupt shift. But this compression of thought really isn't unusual in biblical poetry. And I've mentioned that sort of thing to you in the book of Psalms, where often even the laments that we read or the uh, curses are framed by praise for God. It will begin with praise for God and end with praise for God. And then you have this little section in the middle that is a lament or a curse that really doesn't even take up most of the psalm. And here there's a sh- an abrupt shift. In other words, the focus of David here is the praise of God. Even in his lament and his crying out, that is more peripheral. What he is focused on is the glory of God. And he says, this will please the Lord more than an ox, in verse 31. An ox was the most expensive sacrifice in ancient Israel. And God is concerned with genuine praise, not wealth. We see that, we saw that in Psalm 50, uh, Hosea 14.2, Romans 15.6, Hebrews 13.15. It is replete. God is more concerned with the heart than he is the external factors, the money, that sort of thing. Then in verse verses 32 and 33, when the humble see it, they will be glad. And in verse 33, he says, for the Lord hears the needy. In other words, the way to God is open to the humble and the poor. In God's economy, even the poor come and buy. It is not just the rich. In God's economy, what makes sense here on earth and in this world is turned upside down. And that's one of the things people didn't like about Jesus was he was turning everything upside down. He was taking the status quo and flipping it on its head. Verse 35, for God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. These last verses here were probably added actually later than David during or shortly after the exile of the Jews to Babylon, perhaps in the 6th century before Christ. And so um, this is not, these these verses were not uh, pinned by David, but were perhaps added uh, later. And that is not to say that these are not inspired. I believe certainly there are. They are. I was having a conversation with someone recently about um, there, there are a few sections in Scripture, for example, the end of Mark, that says that these, this passage is not in the earliest manuscripts. Now, what I'm reading to you here in Psalm 69 is in the earliest manuscripts we have. And so Jesus would have known about these texts, um, and, and this would have been present during the time of Jesus and the apostles. However, the end of Mark uh, that is not uh, part in the earliest manuscripts. And so, you know, people might say, well, then is it, should it be canonized? Is it inspired scripture? My contention is that it is not. Um, and that's not to say that it's bad 
or that there's not there are not lessons to be learned from those. In fact, I think it could be useful. Um, but for whatever reason, they are not in the earliest manuscripts, and that's why I'm thankful for that note in most Bibles that says this is not in the earliest manuscripts. And I do not believe it is inspired scripture. So you have to be careful when you come across things like that. Now, I, I could get into a canon lesson. I'm not a canon expert, um, but I have certainly looked into it a little bit. And um, I, I that, that would divert from the focus. It is not part of the scope of what I am speaking of here. So we are going to stay here in Psalm 69, which I've actually just finished here. So... Um, next will be Psalm 70. So Psalm 69, as I mentioned, is a sung refrain with spoken text. And so a lengthy Psalm, but uh, a lot of great stuff here, uh, particularly since it is a lament and an earnest plea from David. But again, you see where his focus is, praising the name of the Lord. Even after all of his complaining, he focuses in and says, here's why I exist here is why I am going through this. It is so that God may be glorified. And may that be our prayer and our heart's cry in every situation in life. Here is Psalm 69. Thank you for listening today to the Act of Worship podcast. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire, where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore. O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord, God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. 
I am the talk of those who sit at the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from seeking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be in desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents, for they persecute him whom you have struck down. And they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. And the people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it. And those who love his name shall dwell in it. song. 